0: Want to welcome everyone here this morning. Uh, we're thankful for everyone who is is here. Uh, as a congregation, we've been going through the book of Romans, and uh, we are going to, Lord willing, uh, tie in Romans with the uh, this time of thanksgiving. You've, if you've ever been in a relationship with someone, you may have found yourself in that relationship in any one of these four different categories, uh, you, you recognize that there is this actual status of a relationship and an objective reality in the relationship. And then there's this other part, which is, which is how, I, how I feel, how, do I, how I experience the subjective part of the relationship. And so if you're in the, in the flourishing category, that means that things are good in the relationship and I feel good about the relationship. This would be like one spouse saying of their, uh, of their spouse, our relationship is rock solid and I love being married to my spouse. That's a person who's in a flourishing relationship. But then there's the false hope. When the relationship is objectively bad, but a person subjectively feels good about the relationship, that person could say the exact same thing a person in the flourishing relationship said our relationship is rock-solid and I love being married to my spouse. But what the speaker doesn't know is at that moment their spouse is visiting a divorce lawyer and filing a divorce. They feel like everything's great but the objective reality is that things are not great. Then there is depression. What I realized later would have been a better title would have been doubt but it was too late. Everything had already gone to press. But depression, not in the clinical sense, but when the relationship is objectively good, but I can't seem to enjoy the relationship. My spouse tells me that they love me, but I think there's something else going on with them. I've hired three private detectives. They've all come back and said, the only thing we can find is that your spouse is deeply committed to you and love you, and you still think, I don't know, they're up to something. Even though the relationship is good, you cannot experience it as good because of your concerns and your doubts. And then there are times when the relationship is just in danger. When the relationship is bad and I feel miserable in the relationship. This would be the couple that goes to the counselor and the counselor says, so what's going on? And the person says, our marriage is on the rocks. I'm not sure we're going to make it. And I'm miserable in this marriage. Counselor asks the other spouse, what do you think? And they say, I feel the exact same way about the relationship. And though this is kind of an oversimplification, in every relationship there's probably a thinker and then there's probably a feeler. And what the thinker wants to focus is on the objective status of the relationship. Are things good and if they're not good, what are the the tasks and the jobs that I need to do in order to make this relationship better? And then the feeler, even though they do consider are concerned about the objective reality, they want to feel something in the relationship. They want to make sure that they feel connected, that they feel close. And so they want to be sure that the experience of the relationship is something positive. And so there's a, a short video that we're going to watch. It's about a minute and a half um, that I think kind of shows the difference between the thinkers and the feelers. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And... And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, That sounds... really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Come on, if you would just... <gasps> Don't! Try to see things my way Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? Anybody see themselves anywhere in that? Of course, the ideal state is when things are objectively good and both people are feeling good in the midst of the relationship. What's interesting, I think, about these four categories is they don't just apply to our relationships with each other. I think we can find ourselves at different points in this kind of a relationship with God. In fact, I find it interesting that in what we've studied so far in Romans, Romans 1.18 through 4.25, Paul has focused almost exclusively on the objective relationship with God, the status that we have with God. It's as if Paul's answering the question, how can I say that things are objectively good between God and mankind? That, that This is not something that Paul just simply wants us to feel like things are good. He wants us to be able to know that things are good in our relationship with God. And so Paul has been focusing on these first two main issues in the first four chapters. First, he's addressing those who have a false hope. He's addressing those who say, hey, we are good with God, and they will even point to some objective things. They say we have the law. They say we have circumcision. They say we have the works of the law. And Paul will show those people that they in fact have a false hope even though they feel like the relationship is in a good place there's a recognition that they are not right with God on the basis of those things. But the second thing that Paul wants them to realize is that all are righteous on the basis of faith alone. That does not matter whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile. That the nature and the basis of our our relationship is established simply by faith. The chapter that we've skipped over is chapter 4 where Paul will illustrate... Uh, to the Jews that this idea of being righteous on the basis of faith is something that began very early in their history. And so he picks Abraham, the the father of the people, to show that even he um, was on the basis of faith, he was made righteous. And so Romans chapter 4, 3 through 5 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. No one who works... Uh, Now to the one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to the one without works, who uh, trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So Paul is talking about the relationship to God and he goes to this this overly ideal romantic uh, uh, sphere or area of accounting. You know, isn't that the language of love? Accounting. So he goes there and he says, look, if a person works, then the wages are reckoned as something due. If an employee, a person works for you for 40 hours, and at the end of that time period you write them a check, would anyone consider you a philanthropist? No. You are simply giving them what is due. In fact, if a person worked 40 hours a week for you, and they did not write you a check at the end of that 40 hours, you could sue them because it's something that is owed to you. And Paul is saying our relationship with God is not like that. Instead, Abraham was given righteousness not as something due, but he was given righteousness as a gift. So God is described as the philanthropist, the one who writes a check and gives and offers something, not on the basis of what is due, but on the basis of his own kindness. And for this reason, Paul has established in Romans 4 that Abraham is the ancestor of all who believe. That there's this previous understanding that to be a child of Abraham, you had to be a a part of that, that biological, that gene pool. And Paul says, no, it's on the basis of faith that we belong in that area. And so we recognize then in these first four chapters, Paul's discussion has belonged in what we could call a legal or a judicial context. I was talking about the objective reality we have with relationship that we have with God. And when you think about the legal context, you might imagine stacks of papers and judges and lawyers and defendants and legal experts. And this is a very highly impersonal place. Everyone there would just simply say, hey, this is not personal. I'm just doing my job. The legal context is impassionate. It is calculating. And Paul is saying that in our relationship with God, there needs to be this legal understanding of the true nature of the kind of a relationship that we have with God. And so he summarizes the first four chapters in this single statement. Therefore, since we are justified by faith. How does one know they can be justified? And Paul has gone through the process to say that it is justification on the basis of faith. And so in Romans chapter 5, Paul's going to switch gears a little bit. Romans five through eight is the next major section in Romans, and there's going to be two significant switches in this section. The first uh, transition is going to be a move away from this legal or judicial context into a more relational, a more personal, and a more participatory uh, sort of thing. So the language that we will find it's going to change; its its tenor is going to change. It's going to more reflect. The subjective things about the kind of a relationship that we have with God. The second thing is that Paul is going to transition from, uh, instead of the things that have been um, uh, just simply removed in our relationship with God, that the removal of sin, the forgiveness, Paul's going to say here are the things that are added to the relationship that we have with God. So Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to recognize that there is a movement, there is a progression here. It's as if there's an assembly line, and the first thing in that assembly line that needs to happen is justification. The objective relationship needs to be made right, but then from there, what we move into is a recognition of a new kind of relationship with God. The relationship that Paul first describes as having peace with God. The relationship is emphasized, you can tell by Romans 5 10 through 11, when three times Paul mentions the reconciliation that we have with God. God justifies us in order to restore our relationship. And I want you to think about it this way Imagine that you are the parent of a 28 year old son with whom you've been estranged for five years. No letters, no emails, no phone calls. For five years at the Thanksgiving table, that seat has been empty. And you get a call out of the blue from someone who says that they work in a prison and that your son is in prison. And that there is a set amount of dollars that if you were to write a check for this, your son could get out of prison. And the parents decide to do two things. Number one, they pay whatever is necessary so their son can be released from prison. But once that happens, there's still something yet that is missing. There's still something yet that is lacking because the other thing they have done is they've sent plain tickets to their son saying, come home for Thanksgiving. And until the son decides to come home for Thanksgiving, until the family is reconciled, there are still pieces that are undone. Still things yet to be clarified. The relationships are not fully restored. I think this is one of the themes that we miss when we talk often about the prodigal son. you're not familiar with the story it is a father and their two sons and they are are seen as a family unit and there is there's peace and there's unity in the home and the youngest son breaks that he takes uh, his father's inheritance and he goes off and he wastes all the money eventually he decides he needs to go back to his father he goes back and he's reinstated in his relationship with his father his father reinstates him as a son. And maybe we think, well, then that's, that's great. The father and son now have a relationship. But the ideal that, was, that we began with was an, a household, a family where there was peace. Father throws a party for the son and the older brother decides he doesn't want to go and be a part of the family. And so the father goes out and he pleads with the older son to come in and to join them. And the, the parable ends with the older son staying outside the party. Because it's now the older son who is saying, this family cannot be reconciled until you come home. Sometimes we think of justification as this, as this process or this, this recognition of simply, God wants to give us justification and forgiveness and redemption. But those are all vehicles that God wants us to travel in order to do what? What is the ultimate end? God wants peace and reconciliation with us. As Christians, we rightfully talk a lot about the justification, the forgiveness, the redemption that we have, but those are all things that have been done in order to be able to once again come home into the very presence of God, to renew a relationship that was broken. And so Paul is going to emphasize this in the fifth chapter as he transitions now into this relational part of the good news message. Notice this is emphasized in Romans 5 two. Through whom, through Jesus, we have access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. The word access is borrowed from this kind of royal courtroom scene. If you're familiar with the book of Esther, there's this event where Esther is going to go and appear before the king and the king hasn't invited her to come. And so Esther says this, she says, Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. You don't just, whenever you feel like it, say, hey king, I'm marching on in here, just wanted to check and see how you're doing. You do not go to see the king unless you first have an invitation from the king. And if you go when the king hasn't invited you, he must hold out his golden scepter or you've overstepped your bounds in that relationship. As one commentator says it, this idea of access is like uh, through Jesus Christ we have been given an electronic ID badge that gets us into the door of the building. Not only does it get you in the door of the building, it gets you into the office of the CEO. And the CEO gives you the badge and he says, anytime you want to come, you're welcome to come. Because the goal here again is not just to say, hey, I just want to know that you're walking around on the bottom floor and that you're feeling good, that you know that all of your debts have been paid. The CEO says, I've paid your debts in order that what? That we can be restored. Come. Renew. Continue our relationship And so there are these these three major things that we realize in the first two verses of Romans 5 that are going to set the scene for the next four chapters. Number one, something has happened in the past. We have been justified. Objectively, our relationship has been made right with God. But we also have peace. We have access to God. God wants us to be able to subjectively enjoy the relationship we have And then there's something that we can hope for in the future. We can boast in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. Which is interesting because anytime we've been talking about boasting so far in Romans, Paul says, don't boast, don't boast, don't boast. And now he's saying, here's something you can boast about. You can boast about the fact that I will share in the future in the glory of God. And Paul imagines someone listening to this sermon saying, Hmm. If I've got this great hope, and if I'm in a peaceful relationship with God, then why are all of these terrible things happening in my life? To which Paul would say, And not only that, but we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Why do we boast in our sufferings? We boast in our sufferings because we know at the back end of that process we will end up with more hope than we had even before. That, that, that we get into these situations and as we're in these situations, what do we find ourselves doing? We find ourselves longing for God to fulfill His promise that we can once again be in the presence and the glory of God. And so Paul says even our sufferings are good because they bring us closer into this place of hope. Paul had talked about in Romans 4, he talked about Abraham. And he said of Abraham that Abraham was hoping against hope. Abraham's body, even though dead, God had promised him a son. And so how's, how's Abraham going to, to, to move through that time of turmoil, that time of suffering in his own life? And he decides, I'm going to hope. And why does he hope? He hoped because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's the only place where we find hope. That's the only basis of hope, being fully convinced that God's going to do what he promised. And in Abraham's case, he had a son, just like God had promised. And so God will use our suffering to bring us to the place where we can have full assurance that he will do all of the things that he has promised to do. But there's probably some of us, and clearly there's some who Paul addressed, who says, you know what? I'm I'm, I'm not going to fall for this. I'm not going to do that false hope thing. I had a best friend, I trusted in him, but he let me down. I married someone, I trusted in them, but they let me down. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to trust in anyone. I'm never going to fully embrace the fact that there is a reason for hope. And so Paul is going to talk about why we can have assurance in the hope of the glory of God. And the first reason that Paul will tell us is because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And what Paul is saying is, "Say, how can I trust that God's going to love me until the end? Paul's going to say, at the point of your baptism... When, when you were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, then as that Holy Spirit came into you, that was a sign of God pouring out His love into your life. You have already experienced the love of God. He's already given you a, a taste of His love. And if, he, and if He was able to love you and pour in that love, then can you not be assured that that love will continue to the end? The second reason that Paul says that we hope in the glory to come is because of what we have witnessed on the cross and what the cross reveals about the love of God. Paul is going to use a a, a form of argument or a form of logic called from, uh, from greater to lesser. If somebody can do something greater, then surely they can also do something lesser. Think about it this way. Somebody... Uh, tells a friend, says, I can bench press 200 pounds. Now, just so you know how much time I spend in the gym, I don't know if that's a lot or not. Maybe everyone can. I have no idea. But let's say your friend says, I can bench press 200 pounds. And you say, no way. I, I don't believe that. There's no possible way. And the friend says, all right, come on over. He puts 250 pounds on the weights and he bench presses that. What do you think? Because he can bench press 250 pounds, you are convinced he can also do what? Surely he can bench press 200 pounds. And so Paul's going to use this kind of argument whenever he's going to give us reason. Why should I hope in the love of God to endure to the point that I can see the very glory of God? And so Paul will introduce us first to the greater challenge. And here's the greater challenge. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God proves His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. See the four different ways Paul categorizes how we were objectively before God. We were weak. We were ungodly. We were sinners. We were enemies. And when that was our status, what did God do for us and to us? He loved us by giving us His Son. That is the greater challenge. And so if he loved us then, Paul says, much more surely then, now that we've been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. Much more surely than having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. So notice what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, when you are a sinner, think about how God trusted you. And now that you're a son and a daughter of God, do you have any doubt that He will not continue to love you into His final glory? Paul's whole argument is based on the love of God that has already been displayed becomes the foundation of the hope that God's love will endure and will continue until the end. And so Paul will say of that love, even more than that, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received Reconciliation. Paul invites us to boast in our relationship with God. And yet, there's some of us who can't even say it. There's some of us who say, Well, I, I don't know, may, 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 maybe maybe I will be in glory with God in heaven, or, or maybe it's possible, kind of, sort of, somewhat. That, that's not what Paul is instructing us to do, is to, is to say, Y'all, you, know, you, ought to, you ought to wake up every day and say, I don't know if it's going to happen. Paul's saying, boast in it. But not boasting it because of who you are, boasting it because of God's love that's already been poured out. If he could do that when you're a sinner, what can he do when you're a son and a daughter of God? Paul's going to have this argument in different ways through Romans 8, and so I'm going to take you to the culmination of his point. No, in all these things we are much more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think for a little bit about what it might be like to be God in relationship with us. You have a little kid, six, seven years old. You're tucking them in at night. And that little six-year-old says, Mom, Dad, do you even love me? Would that question break your heart? And the next day, the kid goes off to school and comes home uh, from school, and here's a picture, and it's, a, it's two people, and, and, and they're there, and they're holding hands, and then there's a big question mark about it. I said, well, honey, what did you draw at school today? Well, I just draw a picture representing the fact that I don't really know if you actually do love me and if you'll love me forever. Wouldn't that break your heart as a parent? And then as you talk to the kid at dinner, your child says, well, we're in science, we're learning about a hypothesis, and a, a hypothesis is a guess about how something's going to turn out, and, and I'm just trying to hypothesize whether, whether you really would always love me, mom, or that you would always love me, dad. I mean, to have that level of insecurity about a love of a parent, and Paul is saying that there are some Christians in Rome, and I think some of us here this morning, who might have that level of uncertainty. And Paul is saying instead what we ought to do is we ought to boast in our relationship to God. In a few days we'll be sitting down at Thanksgiving tables. And, and I, would, I would suggest that, that even if this year for you has so far been the worst year of your life, Romans 5, 1-11 gives enough reasons to keep an entire several hours of conversation going about reasons to be thankful. We can be thankful that we have a flourishing relationship with God because of what He's done in Christ Jesus. We can be thankful that we have justification. God has objectively made the relationship right. We can be thankful that God's not just, not just satisfied in saying, look, our relationship's right, but I just don't ever want to see your dirty face again. He says, we have peace. We have reconciliation. You now have access to me. And you need to remember for the whole entire rest of your life you can boast in this that on the day of glory my love will prove faithful. There's plenty in Romans 5 through 11 for us to be thankful. Thankful for what God has done. Thankful for what God is doing and thankful for what God will do. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here and as we sit around our thanksgiving tables, we remember we are never alone. We go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you are not yet objectively in a right relationship with God, or if you wonder, how can I know if I'm in a right relationship with God? We're going to sing a song in just a minute. And as we sing that, I invite you to come into the back, uh, find myself or one of the elders, and we want to be sure that everyone has a right relationship with God and that we are embracing the gift of the confidence of the love of God. Let's go and stand together and sing. And if you need anything, come to the back while we sing this.